Please hold for Armchair Adventurer. That's not the kind of podcast we are. The mailbox is full and cannot accept any messages at this time. Goodbye. Okay. Pretty good. Okay. This episode is brought to you by the chocolate cake that Chelsea just brought me a couple minutes ago. And Kane's amazing audio equipment. This yeah. this episode <laughs> is brought by my immutable fucking rage about the audio issues we've just been dealing with <laughs> for the past 30 minutes trying to get this ready. <laughs> We'll spare you the details, but uh, it's taken us an hour. I am now completely <laughs> bald. <laughs> so things have been better. Uh, let me see. Can I increase my? Ah, can I show looks all like three one of punch man right now. No, dude. I was trying to figure out how to do that, that too. That Opie shirt. Okay. Well, I guess I'll just deal with. I guess I've been doing the past like five episodes just seeing you two. So. Yeah. Oh, and hey, by the way, this is episode 25. First oh, milestone. Hey. Hello. Silver anniversary, I think. Yeah. Right? Glad I could be here for this momentous occasion. Cuesca uh, <laughs> Centennial. Is that, is that it? <laughs> Quattro yeah, Centennial. Close enough. Um, we're not going to say it. It wasn't bro. a term before. Well, it is now. <laughs> well, do you, uh, never mind. Not important. Uh, so. I. <laughs> I don't. I'm so unprepared because we just rushed in. I got to open my notes. <laughs> you you don't have anything open. Uh, no, I, I restarted my computer like computers. four times. Well, yeah. do we want to start with my story then? Um, sure. Sure. Can you give ready. us the category though, because they're related. True. Yeah. What are we looking right. at here, boys? So basically, we've got two, two. Speaking broadly here, two dead bodies. Missing persons cases. Missing I think. persons cases. Okay. The circumstances of the deaths is not so much in question as the identity of the victims. Is that fair to say? Um, I'm not. Well, for yours, I. I mean, I don't. Yeah. I actually. Well, interestingly, going into this, I don't know how much you did. Did you read up on the case that I'm presenting? Skimmed. Okay. Skimmed. I didn't even skim yours, so this is going to be all new information okay. for me. But I'm going to be sharing mine. I read mine pretty in detail. But uh, for for my case, I wouldn't I wouldn't quite say it's the well the circumstances are somewhat well documented, but the identity is definitely in question. But um, are the, there any I would sort say of hypotheses? The, Oh, there's one, basically one hypothesis for this one. There's, there's like, I don't want to give too much away just yet, but basically the category of who this person was is pretty well established, but the exact identity and what nation they come from is very much in question. I'm interested so to see what you mean by category, but yeah, well, we'll get, there. we'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> so, uh, Kane, I mean, you have your notes pulled up now, uh, which would you like to start with? Would you do what, would you like to start with yours or mine? Um, mine is, mine is a little more well-known, so maybe we should start with mine. Okay. Let's do that. <clears throat> let's okay, take a so, vote from the listeners, actually. Okay. <laughs> we're going to do a live poll. Right. <laughs> Get back to us within one week. <laughs> we'll be live streaming this entire time. You'll just watch our slow descent into madness <laughs> yeah. as we chase down audio issues. <laughs> yes. Oh, gosh. Okay. So, uh, my, my little story is known as the Tamam Shud case, uh, but also known as the Somerton Man, 
the the reason it's called Tamam Should will become quite clear later. And uh, I don't know how to describe it, but that is when the story gets really interesting. So, <laughs> on the first... Ooh, sorry, <laughs> I left out one crucial thing. Let me look it up real quick. I just want to make sure that this is in Adelaide that this happened. Or as the Aussies say, Aussies say, Adelaide. No They way. do say that. Yep. Okay, it is in Adelaide. I just want you to let you know how terribly wrong you're pronouncing that. Everybody thinks you're a fool. <laughs> well, it's all right. I'm prepared to say <laughs> Melbourne later. I've got that. Okay, there uh, So we're, <laughs> I'll, I'll curry back some favor. I'm, I'm mainly doing this to make fun of you so that it softens the blow when I screw up all these Norwegian <laughs> all the, pronunciations all the, later. <laughs> all the moon runes you got to choke through. It is, it is going to be an absolute just shit show of mispronunciation. Mm-hmm. You guys aren't even ready. We've all been there. Yeah. yeah. On the 1st of December... 1948 at 6.30 in the morning, the Adelaide, Australia Police Department are contacted about a dead body on the Somerton Park Beach. And the, this this man, man uh, this body, <laughs> is laying face up with his head resting against the seawall, kind of in like a laying back position, and his legs are fully extended, feet are crossed. So their initial idea is that he died in his sleep, and that's all they have so far. Now, his physical appearance is pretty normal, but there's I, I want to point some of these out because it is very funny what the like pathologist described. The first thing he said was the man looked Britisher. I mean, I guess that just means like more British than your average Australian. Pale? Okay. Yeah, he was a ginger. Um, he oh. was between 40 and 45 years of age. He was in, quote, top physical condition. Oh, he was oh. five foot eleven. This dude was absolutely shredded. Yeah, he had uh, he had gray eyes with ginger hair that was graying around the temples. Now, interestingly, his hands and nails were so pristine that they were. It was clear he was not uh, a manual laborer of any sort, and he had pointed feet and high calf muscles, indicative of someone who either wore boots or high heels or was a dancer. Now, on his body, on his person, he had an unused second-class rail ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach, a bus ticket from the city of Adelaide that may not have been used, a U.S.-manufactured narrow aluminum comb, a half-empty packet of juicy fruit chewing gum, an Army Club cigarette packet, which contained seven cigarettes from a different brand, and a quarter-full box of Bryant and May matches. He was wearing a white shirt, a red, white, and blue tie, brown trousers, socks, shoes, and pullover. Those were all brown. And then he had a fashionable gray and brown double-breasted jacket of reportedly, quote, American tailoring, (laughs) though all of the tags and labels from all of his clothing had been removed. On his person, he had no wallet nor a hat, which the police noted because for the time that was pretty weird that he didn't have a hat with him. And the fact that he had no identification made the police think that he uh, had committed suicide. They tried to turn in the dental records, but nothing came up. I don't know how advanced that system was back in 1948, but either way, swing and a miss. Two people came forward and said that they had seen this man on the beach. Uh, One couple had seen him the previous day from when he was discovered, so November 30th of 1948, in the exact same spot he was found. 
they saw him at about 7 p.m. And even though he was in the same position, they said they saw him lift and drop his right arm. So he was awake and conscious. And another couple saw him about an hour later, somewhere between 7.30 and 8. And they thought it was odd that he was just laying there not reacting to an abnormally large amount of mosquitoes that were plaguing the beach at the time. But the couple assumed him to be drunk or asleep. They didn't see him move, but uh, they kind of like saw him, made a walk and came back and felt like he was in a different position. But they didn't actually see him move. Any questions so far? Not questions, but comments. Okay. Uh, a couple things. One, unrelated, but uh, fuck mosquitoes. Yes. <laughs> uh, especially abnormally large amounts of them on the beach. Right. Poor <laughs> yeah. guy. Uh, two, um, the the couple that saw him, uh, like, my initial thought is that uh, this man was probably already dead when that second group of people saw him. When they didn't, yeah. like, they, they claimed to have seen him move or whatever, you know, or, or uh, he was in a different position. Yeah. Like, eyewitness testimony is, like, you know, notoriously not good. Right. Um, and my guess is that, like, if I just saw somebody laying on the beach, I came back and I saw him and I'm like, I think I, they were in a different position, chances are they were probably in the exact same spot. Yeah. So, like, my I'm, I'm going to go ahead and assume that, that guy died, like, prior to them coming back. Right. So, but my question is, what's the kind of time frame here? So, these people saw him, like, later in the day, the evening... And then they found him the next morning in that same spot, and he was dead? No, somebody else found him on the morning, on December 1st, and called the police. And mm-hmm. so after after it was already in the news, these people came forward, and they're like, yeah, we saw this guy on the beach. The night before? Okay. Yeah, the night before he was found. Okay, well, so it's be- sometime that- overnight that he died. Yes. the um, okay. They think, even though what Greg said very well could be true, they estimate that he died at about 2 a.m. But that's going off of very little. Um, and this is also 1948. Yeah. So where medical stuff was, I mean. They were still doing uh, Civil War surgeries then, just giving shots of whiskey to people and sawing off their leg mm. with a bone saw. <clears throat> fully the conscious. The way it should be. The way it should be. <laughs> um, and I will say, this is, none of this, don't feel like this story's boring. This is, we're not even close to the mystery yet, besides the fact that, you know. The, the, the only mysterious thing so far is that all his tags and, and clothing were removed. All the tags were clothing. Maybe. Very weird. Very weird. <clears throat> so they did the autopsy. The only thing in his stomach was a pasty, which uh, my understanding is that's some sort of British... Uh, I can provide context here. Please. Um, well, so <laughs> this gets confusing because if you go and Google pasty... There's two results that'll come up. One is nipple coverings. Yeah, right. That's what um, I am intimately yeah. familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, uh, but no, these are also popular on the North Shore of Lake Superior, which is somewhere I frequent. Um, so what are they? They're uh, they're basically little, little meat pies, like they're um, yes. There's meat, potatoes, vegetables baked in a little little calzone little, shape, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, just yeah, exactly little that. Like a roast pot pie. Or, yep, pretty much. Yeah, and they're also absolutely delicious. And listeners, if you ever find yourself in Minneapolis, there's uh, the Anchor Fish and Chips sells pasties that are absolutely top notch. No do free ads do, though. So the recommend. Anchor, we expect <laughs> yeah, hey, uh, yeah, payment for that. Payments. <laughs> FedEx ground us some pasties. <laughs> yeah, that works. <laughs> so I'm going to read the, picture on the wall. The coroner's report here. The heart was of normal size and normal in every way. 
small vessels not commonly observed in the brain were easily discernible with congestion. There was congestion of the pharynx, and the gullet was covered with whitening of superficial layers of the mucosa with a patch of ulceration in the middle of it. The stomach was deeply congested. There was congestion in the second half of the duodenum. There was blood mixed with the food in the stomach. Both kidneys were congested, and the liver contained a great excess of blood in its vessels. The spleen was strikingly large, about three times normal size. There was destruction of the center of the liver lobules revealed under the microscope, acute gastritis hemorrhage, extensive congestion of the liver and spleen, and the congestion of the brain. So because of this, the coroner believed that he had been poisoned, but there was no poison like in his stomach in the toxicology or anything. So for two weeks, that's where it stays. They had to, in fact, they spent so long trying to figure out who it was that they had to uh, embalm the body before it like it wasn't even prepped for burial they had to embalm the body to preserve it to keep it around longer and it was the first time uh the adelaide police department ever had to do that but two weeks after the body was found a brown suitcase is found at the adelaide railway station in the luggage check-in with the tags and labels removed Um, and it had been checked in the day before the body was found now the contents of this case are a red checked dressing gown, a size 7 red felt pair of slippers, four pairs of underpants, pajamas, shaving items, a light brown pair of trousers with sand in the cuffs, an electrician's screwdriver, a table knife cut down into a short, sharp instrument, a pair of scissors with sharp, uh, extremely sharpened points, a small square of zinc thought to have been used as a protective sheath for the knife, and a stenciling brush. Three of the items in the suitcase had the name T. Keen, spelled exactly the way my first name is, on them. Uh, a tie, oh. a laundry bag, and a singlet. Yeah, Getting, that'll get you thinking. Uh, police believed that whoever removed the tags either overlooked these or intentionally left them to mislead about the actual name because uh, no T. Keen was reported missing in any English-speaking country. Can I posit a working theory? Yes. Okay. How, actually, give me a percentage about like how much information you've covered so far how, of the fact pattern. About th- one third. Oh, dear God. Okay. So, yeah. Give me a break with this one. Uh, so, this guy on the beach was uh, a cross-dressing <laughs> entertainer, dancing okay. entertainer. And hence the female clothing in the suitcase, the shaving items. And something happened in between him doing a international gig in Australia mm-hmm. okay. and ending up on the beach guzzling as much salt water as he could <laughs> hold, okay. passing out from dehydration and then internal bleeding ensues this is not where i was expecting your guest to get (laughs) yeah the salt water definitely threw me yeah but i mean you know i got some tastes of other things we've done and i got a little bit of yuba county five in this next part because there's a little bit of like missing time because the police scoured the train records and concluded that the Somerton man arrived in Adelaide by overnight train from either Melbourne 
Sydney, or Port Augusta. Uh, They believe upon his arrival in Adelaide, he then showered and shaved at the nearby aquatic center and immediately returned to the station to buy a ticket for the 10.50 a.m. train to Henley Beach. Uh, Now, for one reason or another, he did not get on this train. Instead, he immediately checked his suitcase in and caught a bus to Glenelg. (laughs) That's G-L-E-N-E-L-G. It's always kind of a crapshoot when guessing Australian place names. Yeah. and always a mess. They then... um, they got some some good folk, good like pathologists and uh, researchers from the University of Adelaide to assist, and they did some further investigation in pathology, and they turned up a couple interesting things. For one, the the shoes that he was wearing were in pristine condition and had recently been polished, despite the fact that with the like account of what he had done. He had basically been walking on foot around the beach and Glenelg, I hate the name of that city, all day. But his shoes were perfectly uh, untouched. And the poison theory also received extra support, though they would expect, if he was, to find vomit near him, and they did not. So they thought maybe the thing that could explain both of those is if the body, he had died somewhere else and was dumped there. Mm. Now... The spicy little bit of info they uncovered in this inquisition was that they found a small pocket in the waistband of his pants. And inside this pocket was a small rolled up piece of paper. And the piece of paper said, Tamam should. Now, the text translates to ended or finished. Is what that means in, in what language? Yeah, uh, Persian. Interesting. Oh, oh man, I knew I had heard that somewhere. I've heard that phrase from a book. Wait, uh, don't say anything else. Oh no! <laughs> Wait, Dan, sit down. <laughs> okay. Because from oh. the distinctive font, they were able to determine that the paper was torn from the final page of a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, a collection of 11th century Persian poems. Have you? Are you familiar with this book, Dan? That is not what I was thinking at okay, all. Okay, good. I have, an, I have a question out of ignorance. <laughs> I was going to say. Also. <laughs> yeah, such a Easter That would have been crazy. <laughs> such a nugget. Okay. I don't remember where we left off. We had a little, I'm going to call it a technical glitch, but really it was a Greg glitch. Uh, so the book <laughs> that it was Grinch. from. The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, a collection of 11th century Persian poems. As I'm sure you can imagine, this uh, this really befuddled the police. Until a few days later, a guy who had seen the newspaper article about it, is uh, he, he comes to the police and he's like, uh, yeah, I parked my car on the street and um, my windows were down. And when I got back to my car, uh, this book was in my back seat. And somebody had dumped the copy of the book that the page was taken from in the backseat of this guy's car. Oh, sick. So they look at it from under a microscope and confirm that the like edges of the piece of paper line up. It is the exact copy that this was cut out of. And they also find on this final page the indention of other writing as if like he had written or somebody had written 
on a separate piece of paper, but used this, like used the book as a, a surface to write on, like a hard surface. And they were able to pull what it was, and I'm going to read it, but it's not going to make sense because it's, it's five lines, and it's total gibberish. So the first line is W-R-G-O, A-B-A-B-D. The second line, which is crossed out, says M-L-I-A-O-I. The third line, W-T-B-I-M-P-A-N-E-T-P. Now, the fourth line is presumably the rest of the one that was crossed out, and it was misinterpreted or something, is M-L-I-A-B-O-A-I-A-Q-C. Now, I was getting flashbacks of the Numbers Station episode, because this, to me, seems like a one-time pad. Kane, well, at the risk of potentially... Sorry, my mic was not close enough to my face here. Um, at the risk of foreshadowing my own like like I, I like I'm I'm starting to see a lot of an insane amount of similarities between these two cases. I'm just gonna go ahead and say something that I've been I've been thinking the entire time. Okay. If I was like an impartial observer here, like I mean, Dan, your your theory of this uh cross dressing dancer that is a uh, you know, wonderful theory and all, but there's a much more reasonable explanation for a lot of this and it's something that I'm just going to go ahead and give away basically what's going on with my case as well. Uh, straight up espionage. Espionage. Yeah. yeah. Like, like when you're, when you're talking codes and a mysterious death and uh, remove tags, like there's, this guy's got to be a spy. The question is, where is this guy a spy from? You know? Right. So, well, like this, this code is like, that he's a cross-dressing stripper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dan, well, you're not wrong, actually. Deep cover. Well, yeah. the question is, like, so the, deep, this code, yeah. I mean, the, the background of this guy is really the the main question here, right? I mean, like, where did this guy come from? He looks British-er, right? So, I mean, <laughs> that really leaves things into question. But, I mean, it's not like it's unheard of that there's, you know, uh, agents from that grow up in a country and work for another country as a spy like that's a really good background because then if something like this happens you know you don't really you know it kind of throws you off to where where things are going so i'm really interested to see where the rest of this goes and if they in 1948 they were able to crack this code uh as far as what this thing says but i'm I'm sure kane's got a lot more to say about that but that's just kind of i had to get that out there like like this this has to be espionage because like again mind you I don't know a damn thing about this Tamam Shit case before <laughs> this, like, but just this has to be spies. Okay. Also in the back of the book was a telephone number belonging to a nurse named Jessica Ellen Thompson. She lived in Glenig, where the body was found, and despite this, she claimed to have not known the man nor why he would have had her number. Um, <clears throat> Wait, the number also, was on the page or in the book? It was in the book. Okay. Um, she also said that while she was working at the Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney during World War II, she owned a copy of the Rubaiyat, and in 1945 at the Clifton Gardens Hotel in Sydney, she had given it to an army lieutenant named Alf Boxel, who was serving at the time in the Royal Australian Engineers. Thompson told police that after the war ended, she had moved to Melbourne and married. And she said that she had received a letter from Boxall and replied telling him that she was now married. Um, 
so would you be mad if I told you that that's basically where the story ends? Uh, I mean, nowhere along the story that you have told have I been happy because <laughs> we've never had the answer. So I'm about the same, but I feel like, so if I were to take a wild guess, which I'm sure is wrong because like anybody devoting like a serious amount of time to trying to figure out what's going on here probably would have thought of this, but I think this guy, I like the spy idea. He's undercover. He receives some sort of coded message that he writes down on this book. The thing is this book is part of the code. So the code mm -hmm. that he receives tells him where to look in the book yeah. and it was the tamam should line and that is like also a coded message for you know you're compromised you better kill yourself yeah i agree with everything you said and i'm actually thrilled to tell you that's not where the story ends i just want to know if you'd be mad if it was <laughs> um, <clears throat> you asshole <laughs> okay so uh she said she gave that book to alf boxel and um that was her trying to end it uh they were able to track down this man he was alive and he still had the book and it was still fully intact so that was not exactly the case and also mm. an author actually that that takes place after even though it was before in the in the page when the detective sergeant working on this second inquisition into it when they found the piece of paper when he showed uh miss jessica thompson the plaster mold of the man he described her reaction as, quote, completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance that she was about to faint. And when an author who wrote a book on the case, Gary Feltis, interviewed her much later, this was like early 2000s, uh, he said that she was being very evasive and just plain did not want to talk about it. So you think that reaction kind of indicates she knew who he was? She, I, Yeah, I totally think she knew. And also... This may maybe will make more sense with after I say, but you guys have already talked about the spy thing. She was very clear with the police that she did not want them to use her real name in any of the reports and wanted them to scrub her name from every, every part of involvement with it. Oh. So, and I mean, that is pretty much where at the time where the investigation stayed. Uh, there were a lot of people who'd come forward and be like, I know who that is, but then all of them just ended up being, it's not the person, not the person. Hold on. So, so one, one question here. So, do you mean not the person as in the police said that was not the person slash police slash Australian intelligence or something was disproven? Usually disproven. So would be like, oh, this is our friend Ed. He was a logger. Okay. And then gotcha. they, then they look and be like, Oh wait, no, he had a, he had a very distinctive scar, you okay. know, something like well, that. Yeah. I mean that, cause that seems mm -hmm. to be pretty consistent with a lot of like missing persons cases where it's like really high profile where somebody's like, Oh, I know. And yeah, it's like, exactly. No, obviously there's huge plot holes in what you're saying. So the but people there's, showing there's huge, up because, cause there's a huge difference between, you know, police, government, whatever saying, no, that's not it versus actual this, you know, mm. right. Yeah. Okay. So for a little, little, just want to make sure this is clear. This nurse, Jessica Thompson, she did marry. She married somebody named Prosper Thompson. And uh, she had some kids. Now, 
some things came up like a, a new investigation was reopened in like 2006 or something. And they were able to identify some very key things. So the Somerton man had two very specific conditions. His upper ear hollow is lower or is larger than his lower ear hollow. Only one to 2% of Caucasian people have this. Oh. Furthermore, he had hypodontia, meaning he was missing his incisors. He did not have incisor teeth. It went the two front teeth straight to the canines. So, Jessica, you're say, so you're saying he looks like a fucking vampire? Like a stupid vampire. No, like the opposite, yeah. That's, I mean, because the incisor, or the, the, the canines the, are the... Yeah, so the canines were a lot closer ones? to his the front of his mouth. Oh, oh man, canines were still there. Weird. Yeah, that's and you cool. said the ear thing, do you have any idea where that like ethnically comes from? No. Because that might kind of point towards where this guy might have been from. Well, g- get this. <laughs> Jessica Thompson had a son named Robin who was supposed to be the son of, you know, Prosper, the person she married. Okay. But... That's a weird name. The ears... He he also had the ear condition and also had the teeth condition. The the likelihood of that being a coincidence as opposed to genetic inheritance is somewhere between 1 in 10 and 1 in 20 million. Wait, 1 in 10 million and 1 in 20 million? Yes. Okay. Um, Okay, so, like, this, this is probably... This summer, kid. Ten, summer ten man. So he's likely to be kid, likely the father yeah. of this kid. And being 1948, and the implications of kid outside of marriage in well, conservative yeah. Australia, that that seems like a very hush hush thing, and that that might possibly explain her unwillingness to talk. Also, this is this is I'm just this is the spy thing. In a okay. 60 minutes interview, Kate, the daughter of Jessica and Prosper Thompson, the youngest one. This is after Jessica had died. What, uh, when was this interview? Sometime after 2009, because that's oh, when okay, Jessica gotcha. died. All right. She said that her mother was lying to the police and that she did know the identity of the man. And she said that the identity was also, quote, known to a level higher than the police force. She believed her mother and the man were spies, as Jessica Thompson taught English to migrants was very interested in communism and could speak fluent Russian, despite never disclosing to her daughter why and how she knew Russian. Interesting. Now, that is pretty much all on this, but get this. There's a very, very related case. In June 1945, so this is three years before the death of the Somerton Man, a 34-year-old Singaporean named George Marshall, born uh, Joseph Saul Haim Mashal, was found dead in Ashton Park, Sydney. Ashton Park is directly adjacent to Clifton Gardens, where Thompson gave Boxall the book. And he was he was found dead with an open copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam on his chest. His death is believed to be a suicide by poisoning and occurred two months before Harkness gave Boxall the inscribed copy of the Rubaiyat. An inquisition was held on the 15th of August, 1945 and somebody named Gwyneth Dorothy Graham testified at the inquest, and she was found dead 13 days later, face down in her bathtub with her wrist slit. Oh, boy. Whoa. So with all of that, I saved the juicy bits for the end. How positive are you that this was spies? I am like 100% sure that it was not, spies. 99.8%. Yeah. Percent. <laughs> like, there's, there's, no, not even that. 100%. What are you, what are you talking about? Like, Definitely leave one percent for aliens, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. As like, close as you can be. We, yeah. We we gotta. Yeah. This podcast course, has account to for that for, for risk factors, but just in case. 
Okay, technical gremlins, guys. We uh, <laughs> a little more than tactical yes, gremlins. Uh, through a myriad of um, insurmountable issues, <laughs> there has been in since a fifty percent <laughs> reduction in staff due to COVID. In the past uh, forty-five <laughs> seconds, Dan and Paul. Both, both died away died from <laughs> tra- fucking coronavirus tragically covid19 took their lives in a matter of seconds we're gonna get to the second part now but it's just greg and i and uh it's a it's a nighttime cast <laughs> the moon is shining uh a few drinks have been poured. Greg, let's get into it. What do you got for us? All right. Well, we got the Isdal woman to talk about. So our story begins in the afternoon of the 29th of November, 1970, near the town of Bergen on the west coast of Norway. So uh, you better believe I built a Bergen background, but Anne's a voice. <laughs> I wrote that ahead of time. That is not that clever. Uh, I just really wanted to say a whole lot of B words. You also, so, yeah, you said boys, anticipating there to be more than just the two yeah, of us. I, yeah, I, I, I did. I did. Uh, there were more boys, but uh, the boys are unfortunately the boys are out of town. Unfortunately, the boys are out of town. <laughs> yeah. They're out of life. They died of coronavirus, and probably are going to resume as zombies in future episodes. So, all right, Bergen. Bergen's on the west coast of Norway, as you may have heard in my last couple sentences. Uh, Bergen is the second largest city. In, I want to stop and say. This is where we inject actual geography in our podcast. Where yeah, we got to get um, in somewhere, right? You know, I, I was talking about this to a coworker earlier today at my unnamed workplace. Um, they were like, I mentioned that I, I was very stressed out at work, and I was just like, I'm looking forward to doing this podcast after work. They're like, Oh, what's your podcast about? And I was like, Uh, because the answer is that we don't talk about anything in in particular. This po- like, this podcast is completely directionless, and you idiot viewers just. It's like uh, it's like happens. Prince, yeah, the podcast formerly about geography. Is, is <laughs> exactly. So supposedly we're talking about uh, you know geography, but um, when do we ever actually do that? Uh, and the answer is now, and that's why I bored them to the point where they got coronavirus and died. I, I, I bored <laughs> our other co-hosts until they literally dry died of coronavirus, which is literally just a disease about being bored. So. Uh, tweet that yeah. at our president yeah, in please. the in the manner of in the manner of full disclosure uh this is our second take but uh n- not everybody made it through the first take so we gotta we're starting over so there's continuity and uh greg go ahead and continue so we're talking about bergen a town in western norway which is the second largest city in norway norway Founded around the year 1000 A.D., uh, more accurately about the ta- uh, the year 1020 A.D., uh, is the busiest port in Norway, both in terms of shipping and passengers. 300 plus cruise ships pass through in a given year, carrying 1 million plus passengers. That is in t- like today's numbers, not 1970 numbers. I can guarantee you, 1 million people are not going through Bergen in 1970. It's a much smaller place to be. Uh, and the city's name translates to the green meadow among the mountains. Uh, most importantly, the city of Bergen is often called the City of Seven Mountains. There are several mountains that uh, comprise the Seven Mountains. Or, so, sorry, excuse me. These Seven Mountains are not defined in a hard term because this city is 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 a bit of a fjord if you will it's 
between mountain ranges with a big old valley with some some water in between. So uh, some people refer to some of these mountains as part of it, and some people do not. But I will uh, I will do the listeners a favor and attempt to pronounce. Well, you know what? We're gonna switch it up a little bit. Okay. The first take we did of this episode, mm-hmm. I tried to read these names. Oh, you're going to pass the buck? I'm going to make you try and attempt to pronounce <clears throat> these names. So, Kane, um, well, the most important one and the one that I will actually pronounce, the one that we will talk about the rest of this episode, is called Ulriken. But the rest of the names of these mountains on this list, I'm going to make Kane okay. attempt to pronounce. So Here we go. After Ulriken, let's, let's hear what the rest of these seven mountains are called. Okay, uh, I'm going to try my best. Oh, I, no, I see it. I see it. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try I'm pointing my... at the physical printout of this episode that I made because I'm the most prepared person on this podcast. I print out my episodes. I staple them. I had mine digitally I, prepared. I, that does not I make wanna, you more... I, I want to emphasize the fact that I am the most Just because you have access to a printer does not make you more important than me. I wholly disagree. Okay, that makes well, me 100% more important. I could have had these pages stapled automatically Greg, by a copier. Greg, if you please, <laughs> I will read now. Okay. Let's hear your terrible pronunciations that are almost worse than mine. Lovstaken, Floyfjellet, Damskarfjellet, Eskjoyflet, Blamenen, Liderhorn. Oh, shit. Oh, boy. Rundemann. And uh, Sandvik's Fliet. I will say, categorically, Kane's pronunciations were better than mine. Yeah, you should have heard Greg's. They were pretty fucking embarrassing. They were way worse, and I, I really want you to turn those into sound clips. So. <laughs> well, they're gone. All right. Well, uh, they are deleted. They are um, deleted. They are no longer. They so are in the ether. Anyway, uh, so like I mentioned before, Ulrikin is the only one we really care about. So Ulriken is where our story begins. So Ulriken is the highest of the seven mountains of Bergen. It is 2,110 feet tall, and it has an aerial tramway called Ulriksbanen. Uh, this, uh, this tramway was opened in 1961, a whole nine years before our story, story begins, and three years after our four, sorry, excuse me, four years after our story begins, uh, a gondola detached from said tramway, and fell to the ground several hundred feet below, killing four people. Mm-hmm. I just want to go ahead and highlight the fact that if you ever get on a gondola, it's probably going to fall. You're probably going to die. And uh, yeah, that's skiing has a one hundred percent mortality rate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You should not go skiing. You yeah. should never support a ski resort. Um, anyway, so Ulrikin, uh, as I mentioned, this is where our story begins. Um, Oh, I have way more useless information about this. Should I gloss over it, or should I bore the listeners? Um, it's it's not very much. It's, it's not it's, gloss over, but maybe maybe pick. I see like six points. Maybe okay, do like right. three. All right. Well, I'll get over it. Uh, so there's a this this mountain is is well. The important thing to note is that this mountain's pretty pretty damn important for the city of Bergen. Uh, it's it's like you know think of it as if like. You know, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the first take, you compared it to Lake Michigan. In I did. To you know, if you're if you're in Chicago, Lake Michigan, major landmark. You know, like you know, Lakeshore Boulevard. That's a big fucking thing. You know, um, if if you know if you're in New York, it's it's the ocean. It's well, those are 
also just both big bodies of water instead of mountains. Uh, Denver, it's the front range. You know, it's the thing, the thing you look at when you're in the, in the downtown of the city. So, um, this city's pretty damn important. There's a huge railway tunnel through it. There's a restaurant at the top now. There's TV towers. But uh, most importantly for our story, there's a network of hiking trails that go up and around the mountain and the surrounding areas, and they're very popular with both tourists and locals. So um, there's a valley on the slopes of this mountain, which is known as Iselden, which translates to Ice Valley in English. Uh, Ice Valley doesn't sound so bad, but when uh, you look at the other nickname, it is also nicknamed Death Valley, due to the long history of the valley being used in the Middle Ages as a place where people went to commit suicide. Oh, wow. A little suicide forest. Uh, Pretty animal. much, and and I'll, I'll touch on that later. But yeah, no, like it's, it's very much known as a valley of death. So, back to the story. Um, this whole story is about a woman, the Isolol woman. So, obviously, this is about an individual. Um, so, we'll transport ourselves back to the 29th of November, 1970. So, uh, on this beautiful afternoon, I don't know about beautiful, it could Wait, have been I'm sorry. cloudy. Does, is that when this takes place? Is that when this yes, happens? Yes, so, so okay. this whole thing takes place in, in the year of 1970. The, the actual event that I'm talking about takes place in November of 1970. Okay. So, in... On the 29th, the afternoon of the 29th of November, 1970, uh, a local man was on a hike with his two young daughters in the hills on the north face of the mountain. Uh, by the hills on the north face of the mountain, I mean that he was hiking in the Death Valley with his daughters. Why he was hiking in a suicide forest with his kids, I can only guess. Uh, he was probably a shitty dad. Uh, I can only imagine they have those in Norway. Um, they have those here. Uh, but I can only imagine if my dad was walking me through a suicide forest, I'd probably think he was a pretty shady dad. Yeah. So, uh, fuck that guy. Right. Um, so as they were hiking along, they, uh, they began to smell a smelly smell. Uh, that smell was, uh, was burning body. Yeah. Uh, they quickly found out that they, uh, they were catching on to a unusual burning smell. This unusual burning smell, uh, they, they, they were like, what, what is the smell? Let's walk towards the smell. And unfortunately, one of this man's uh, daughters then happened upon the source of the smell. Mm-hmm. What do you think the source of the smell was, Kane, based on the story? Well, you already said burning bodies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so obviously it's that. My guess would be a body on fire or perhaps had recently been on fire. Smoldering yeah. body. Yes, it was uh, the, the source of the smell was the charred remains of a woman who was perched in a supine position, which if you are unfamiliar, that is a horizontal position face up so laying down on the ground with their face facing the sky uh amongst some scree scree meaning the broken rock fragments at the bottom of a cliff so you know as you can imagine if a rock fell off of a cliff and hit another rock it might break into smaller rocks so uh if you've ever been to a place that has a massive cliff you might see small rocks that is exactly what i'm talking about that is scree so uh the woman that they found her hands were drawn up in a sort of boxer-like position in front of her in front of her chest, uh, which is apparently common in burning deaths. So, as we know, this woman clearly was charred and was burned at some point. So, as you can imagine, Kane, what what do you think? What would you do if you came upon a burning body with your daughters? Um, well, I guess cover cover 
Nah, no, probably too late to cover their eyes. You get the hell out of there. Well, nine one one probably, or the well, this is nineteen seventy equivalent. Oh, no cell phones. You're right. Correct. Yeah. So, what would you do? You get the hell out yeah. of there, and you tell the police. Right? Yes. Yep. That's the reasonable response. And you know what? This man was reasonable. He did exactly that. He uh, he fled the scene, not because of the implications, but uh, but because they wanted to find out what was going on. So, this man immediately fled back to the city reported his findings to the police, and the police immediately responded with a full-scale investigation. So, um, the name of this investigation, for those interested, was 134-70, which I can only imagine means this is the 134th case of the police in the city in 1970, which, to me, is extremely Norwegian. The fact that they only had 133 (laughs) cases before this that were criminally liable yeah at least before at least uh you know as notable, long as they had, had that system or whatever Correct, you know, yeah. yeah or at least well based on the slash 70 that means to me at least that's the oh of that year yeah okay. that, that that to me that's what i okay assume. that makes a lot more sense yeah. i didn't read into it too far as far as the police report numbers go but that's what i assume the police started investigating immediately as a burning body you know Generally would, would prompt warrants, them yeah. to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so they, they immediately noticed that they, uh, they were looking for a source of ignition. Being mm-hmm. a burning body, you know, you'd imagine something had to light them on fire. Yeah. So the first thing they looked for was a campfire nearby, and they did not locate one, so they immediately suspected foul play. Um, one of the interesting things that they noted was that the this woman may have been severely burned, but she wasn't entirely burned how do you mean only the front of this woman's body okay burned. not the rear of her body as if some meaning, sort of meaning fuel or accelerant had been poured on her and perhaps we'll okay. get into that in further discussions so uh yeah so the the front of her body and her clothes were severely burned and uh the burns were as i mentioned before quite severe which rendered her face unrecognizable, which definitely complicates the rest of the investigation. Also located or placed near her body and affected by the fire were the following. An empty bottle of St. Halvard liquor, which is a low-cost liqueur produced in Norway. Two plastic water bottles, a plastic passport container, rubber boots, a wool sweater, a scarf, nylon stockings, an umbrella, a purse, a matchbox, a watch, and two earrings and a ring. Around her body were traces of burned paper, and beneath her body was a fur hat, which was later found to have traces of gasoline. Ooh. Which is where this accelerant comes into place. Sure. So, I don't think anybody could see a fur hat that was soaked in gasoline as anything other than foul play. Right. All of the identifying marks and labels on every single one of the aforementioned items have been either removed or, or rubbed off, which is one of the things that really ties this case to Tamam, uh, Tamam, well, I can't pronounce this. I, yeah, I Tamam should. Tamam should. Yeah. Excuse me. I should know that. <laughs> if you will. Nice. 
So, uh, the police continued their investigation, and three days later, the investigators for this this death for, with the Bergen police identified two suitcases that were left at the Bergen railway station, not far away, that belonged to the woman. Well, this is quite similar. Yes. Okay. That's what I'm saying. Like there was, I was trying to not give away too much earlier, but uh, there's just so many similarities. It's it's kind of ridiculous. Um, so they found these suitcases that uh, they determined belonged to the woman. In the lining of one of these suitcases, the police discovered 100 Deutschmarks, which in 1970 was $137, which adjusted for inflation is $910. Oh, wow. Not a, not a small number. Uh, among other things, they found uh, clothing, shoes, wigs, makeup, uh, eczema cream, cream, creme. Uh, What'd you say? Eczema. Eczema? Eczema. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me, listeners, for not knowing my skin diseases. Uh, 135 Norwegian kroner that I did not adjust for inflation. Uh, Belgian, British, and Swiss coins. Maps, timetables, a pair of glasses with non-prescription lenses, sunglasses with partial fingerprints that match the body, clearly linking this to the woman, cosmetics, as well as a notepad. Uh, as with the body, any possible identifying notif- or information had been removed from all of these items, including like the cosmetics. Like they literally like they tested the cosmetics mm-hmm. to try and find the where they came from because cosmetics weren't a huge international business like they were or like they are now. Uh, they couldn't figure it out. Right. They did not know where this woman came from. Right. Yeah, you know, despite I hate, all of these pieces of evidence, they did not figure out where this woman was coming from. Well, and I hate to backtrack. At first, I was going to say all of those different kinds of currencies would immediately scream espionage, but then then I realized that traveling in Europe pre-European Union, you may very well have just had yeah, not really a lot suspicious. of different currencies yeah. on you. Yeah. Well, what I'll tell you is that things get increasingly suspicious. So, an autopsy of her body at the Gates Institute concluded this woman had died from a combination of incapacitation by, and these are words that I'm going to screw up, so phenobarbital and poisoning by carbon monoxide. So it was found in her lungs, indicating she was alive as she burned, and her neck was bruised, possibly from a fall or by a blow. Uh, obviously, none of those words were the ones I was talking about. It was phenobarbital and you nailed it i think uh yeah well we're going to talk about that in a minute here analysis of her blood and stomach showed that she had consumed between this is not to be taken lightly 50 and 70 phenomal based brand or sorry phenomal brand sleeping pills Ooh, okay 50 and between 50 and 70 of them yeah that's suicide when was when was the last time you took between 50 and 70 sleeping pills (laughs) The last time he died? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, you you cannot take 50 to 70 sleeping pills and, and make it out alive. Uh, side note, very bizarre thing. Why would you ever take 50 to 70 sleeping pills and then set yourself on fire if it was suicide? Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, personally. If, if I was going to commit suicide with 50 to 70 sleeping pills... I sure as hell would not be set myself on fire. No, wouldn't you just do the classic, take the sleeping pills, and then maybe like a bottle of wine? Yeah, and then just fall asleep and maybe think about my cats. Yeah, of course. 
like any rational person would. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So she took a lot of sleeping pills and then burned alive. Mm. Troubling. Certainly suspicious. <laughs> Troubling. Yeah. So, um, anywho, as I mentioned before, Vince Vaughn bubble fix it. We talked about why well, I did. We talked about uh, smoke inhalation or something like that earlier, right? Uh, so soot was found in her lungs, indicating that she was alive as she burned, which I mentioned uh, just a minute ago. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, after the sleeping pills, they also discovered next to her body a further 12 sleeping pills. At the time of her autopsy, her teeth and jaw were both removed for a very specific reason. Why do you think they removed them, Kane? Her teeth and jaw were removed? Correct. Okay. Um, it's time for autopsy. Uh, I've got two guesses. Okay. Uh, Let's hear <clears throat> One, is there any chance they were looking for embedded cyanide capsules? Uh, negatory. Okay. Had the phenobarbital destroyed her teeth? Also negatory. Then I have no idea. What I can tell you is that uh, we were talking about this earlier, but teeth are one of the best indicators of where somebody comes from as far as just analyzing them, especially after some sort of like burning death or something like that. Okay. Teeth are pretty strong. Yeah. And uh, they contain a lot of So what are you saying? They were using it to check the dental records? Cor- well, kind of. We'll get into that in a little bit here. So um, the reason that her teeth were preserved was she had some very unique gold-filled dental work. Ooh. And uh, they wanted to take some tissue samples of her organs as well. So they did that when they were uh, doing the autopsy. So after that, the uh, police in Bergen uh, launched an appeal for information in the Norwegian media regarding the case. The last time this woman was seen alive was on the 23rd of November when she checked out of room 407 in the hotel Horda Hyman. The hotel staff told police that she was good-looking and roughly 5 feet 4 inches tall with dark brown hair and small brown eyes. And as you can imagine, in 1970s Norway, uh, not necessarily the most common-looking person being super dark-haired and dark-eyed. They tend to be uh, what gain? Uh, Light-haired and light-eyed, would you say? (laughs) Yeah. uh, Definitely not what you would assume the average Western Norwegian would look like Mm -hmm. in 1970. So definitely the potential that this was a foreign national. Right. So uh, staff noted that the woman kept mainly to her room and seemed to be kind of on guard in in a way. And when she checked out of the hotel, she paid her bill in cash and requested a taxi. Her movements between then and the discovery of her body remain unknown to this day. But uh, police were, so, uh, well, I'm, I screwed some stuff up here. One of the things that was found in her luggage was a uh, small, oh, a notebook of some kind. And there were some notepad entries in this book. I don't know how I didn't go into detail about this before. But there were, again, as with the previous case, coded entries into this notebook. Ah, Luckily, police were eventually able to decode 
oh. with the markings in this notebook set. Okay. The Once they decoded it, they determined that it indicated dates and places which this woman had visited. And as a result, based on handwritten check-in forms, the police determined that the Isdal woman had traveled around Norway, not just stayed in one place. Uh, she went to both, or, well, not both, but uh, Oslo, Trondheim, and Stav- Stavanger, Stavanger, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce that, as well as uh, other places in Europe, including Paris, uh, and she used at least eight fake passports Whoa. and aliases, uh, all of them claiming to be Belgian. It was also learned that she had previously stayed at several hotels in, in Bergen and was known to change rooms after checking in. She was kind of shifty. She's like, yeah. I want to change rooms, you know. She often told hotel staff that she was a traveling saleswoman and antiqu- antiquities dealer. One of the witnesses said that she overheard the woman talking to a man in German in the Bergen Hotel. Others who met, have met her mentioned that she spoke Flemish and broken English, and this is one of the most strange details of the entire story. She smelled weird. What okay. Did, what did she smell? She smelled like cane. <clears throat> what do you think this woman smelled like? Herring. <laughs> no, I'm, uh, I'm just kidding. Um, she was not from Norway, so herring is yeah, pretty much was, out of the that question. That was just a, <clears throat> I, I get a fun joke, little callback. What, uh, what do you think this woman smelled like? <clears throat> it was a very notable scent that people took note, like literally took note of. Yeah, okay. I'm going to give Kane three more seconds before I say this. One. Spinach. Garlic. Wow. This woman smelled of garlic heavily to the point where it was notable. Uh, I I do not understand why she smelled like garlic. That really doesn't give us any kind of detail. She just, you know, I I don't doubt that this woman just went and had a garlic-heavy meal and and somebody said she smelled of garlic. But uh, is is an important detail as far as, like, the actual deduction of the story that she smelled really heavily of garlic. I'm sorry, can I... I feel like that gave me some weird <clears throat> kind of uh, like I feel like I've heard that before. Do you do you remember? Did you ever see that story about the woman who was inducted into a hospital and like every everything was wrong with her, like disastrously wrong? Like her her blood was like green. Ooh! And they had to like evacuate the entire check. hospital except a skeleton crew. And I think she just stunk of garlic. I have not heard of the story, but I'm sure that that's the thing. Yeah, but. you go you go ahead and keep going and I'll see if I can find it. All right. Well, uh I can tell you that this woman smelled of garlic quite badly. Uh and, and people who saw her and met her also noted one important thing that was that she wore wigs frequently. Uh so composite sketches based on uh witness descriptions and the analysis of her body were then circulated in many countries via Interpol, the international police. Uh, despite the significant police, re- police resources deployed for this case, the unknown woman was never identified to this day, and the case was quickly closed. The quickly closed part is, is notable. We'll, we'll, we'll touch on that later. But uh, So, uh, this, this body obviously, like, or not body, but uh, this woman... Smelt of garlic for whatever reason. Uh, notable uh, because people clearly 
it felt it noteworthy enough to tell the police. Um, as I said before, uh, she also wore wigs. But um, so yeah, based on composite sketches uh, that were based on witness descriptions and also the analysis of her body, um, they took those and made composite sketches and circulated them in many countries via Interpol. So despite the significant police resources deployed in Bergen, this unknown woman was never identified. The case was quickly closed. Uh, Authorities concluded that she committed suicide by ingestion of sleeping pills, as we know she did take, uh, but obviously many other people believe that there's evidence that this woman was killed, like murdered. Right. Uh, So uh, one thing I'll briefly touch on, this woman was buried. She, uh, I mean, you, you may wonder what happens to a body of somebody like this. And the answer is that she was buried on the 5th of February, 1971. She was given a Catholic burial, which was based on her use of saints' names on her check-in forms. And she was buried in an unmarked grave within the, I'm going to, again, butcher this, Molendal graveyard based in Bergen. Uh, her burial was attended by 16 members of the Bergen police force, and she was buried in a zinc coffin, both to preserve her remains and for the ease of disinterment if she ever had to be exhumed. Hmm. Her uh, ceremony was also photographed in case relatives came forward at a later date since they did not know who this woman was. Honestly, very thoughtful of the people that buried her that to do so. So, so as far as theories go, what do you think, Kane? What do you, who, how do you think this woman died? Like, do, what, what do you think caused her death what what led up to this um well definitely uh thinking she's a spy either got popped or uh outlived her usefulness and um (laughs) or showed signs of defecting where do you think this woman was a spy from where, what, what what makes sense based on Norway in 1970 well like, I would, what, what was going on in the world in 1970 yeah, what, what was the big big just like like the overall picture of international politics in 1970 yeah, what, what was the overlying theme I would immediately think Soviet yeah Soviet I, like Soviet or or something related to East West you know, right yeah, Cold, Cold War, War. yeah yeah because it's like like 1970s <clears throat> not quite the height of the Cold War things are kind of kind of slow well i mean if we consider the context of the cold war like bay of pigs is like a peak right yeah you know and like early 1970s is kind of a lull and uh-huh. then 80s is kind of another peak right you know? so like sure but there's still stuff going on of course so yeah. like i mean especially when it comes to spying on like military technology and that kind of thing and, and obviously like norway would be you know kind of a third party to this whole thing but um yeah i, I think that like Russian spy kind of thing is, is definitely a, a reasonable guess. So anything else to say about that before I continue? No. All right. Well, so as far as theories go, uh, as I mentioned before, the police in Bergen have officially, even to this day, uh, insisted that it was a suicide. Um, in my notes, I want to uh, note that is obviously horse hooey. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> it is suspected that the police, as well as Kripos, which is Nor- the Norwegian National Investigative Police, along the lines of the FBI, ex- except that they eat dried cod, as well as uh, <laughs> Norwegian intelligence, uh, it's it's 
pretty clear they were pressured to shut down and cover up this case. Okay. So somebody knew what was going on. I think that the Norwegian National Investigative Police probably knew a little bit more right. than the general public. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, and ob- obviously, like, Norway being kind of a third party to the, the, the Cold War probably didn't want to stir the pot if it yeah. was somebody, a foreign national that was a spy in their country, you know? And, well, I got to wonder, because I imagine it's a not necessarily a similar thing, but I would guess in this country if, let's say this happened in America and the FBI shut down the thing, but it was, you know, obviously if it was like espionage, that would be in the wheelhouse of the CIA. Correct. Now, I wonder if that's the kind of thing where the FBI probably wouldn't even know why they had to shut it down, but were just given the, because, you know, it's not like the CIA and the FBI just like share notes, you know? Yeah. They're totally separate. Not always. Yeah. Um, So I wonder if this is one of those things where they were just told, where it's just a chain of command, like shut this down and then the... Well, you know, national service was like shut this down, and especially then, in 1970 before like Norwegian oil profits, where they were kind of just like they were a really small country with not a ton of money. Yeah. My guess is they just probably got bullied by the West, right? United States in specific to just kind of shut up. Yeah, the Five Eyes. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, are they part of the Five Eyes? No, but I, I that's what but I was yeah, like okay, interpreting okay. as got, the West. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well reasonable assumption as far as intelligence stuff goes yeah so um anyway now we start to see a little bit more of the picture so um as i mentioned before this this woman is almost certainly a spy but uh the real question is where she was a spy from which is not clear okay so um not only did uh this strange uh, sorry, this is not the only strange disappearance or incident in Norway during the Cold War. And uh, most of the others were near military installations and, again, <laughs> were likely linked to espionage. And uh, there are some declassified records now that we, we know came from Norwe- the Norwegian Defense Ministry that reveal that many of the movements this woman made happened to coincide with top-secret military trials of Norway's new missile system they were testing at the time, which was the Penguin missile system, which is an infrared-seeking anti-ship missile. Okay. As you can imagine, during the Cold War, a an infrared-seeking yeah. anti-missile... It's a hot-button issue. Clearly, and, and I want to note that this Penguin missile system is not some podunk missile system. This is something that is still in use by up to, like, I think it was like eight countries or nine countries today, including Brazil and the United States. So this is still a current missile system. And th- we're talking about 1970. Right. These are missiles that are being tested then that are still in use today. So clearly this is some cutting-edge military technology. So, like... Honestly, really not that far-fetched to believe this person was a spy that was trying to find information about the military. It is it is funny when you uh, compare the naming conventions between, like, you know, the Penguin, <laughs> yeah. whereas well, we have, like, the Patriot yeah. and the Peacekeeper well, and Trident and yeah. you know, well, Titan. We call this, like, the AGM 150-something or something like that. Yeah. That's our military Of course, military we would design. never attach Penguin to a, <laughs> something the U.S. military would use. Ever. Penguin is just an embarrassing name for a missile. Also, 
I want to note that that may be a point of pride for the United States, like like naming missiles, you know, badass stuff. But imagine getting killed by a penguin missile. Yeah, that's how you really stick. Like to get them. get to the afterlife and be like, oh yeah, I got killed by a penguin. Yeah, <laughs> what a loser. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you got killed by a Miniman or a Patriot, yeah, you got some dignity. That's with the death, halls of Valhalla for you, friend. Precisely, yeah. like but like. You get killed by a penguin, everybody's going to laugh at you in, in death. <laughs> pathetic. Anyway, back to the serious topic here. So, um, this woman's clearly a spy. I think, at least. No, no question. Um, well, I mean, there's there's, there's, quite, there's I, some question, but eh, it's it's... I personally, I think that it's a hundred percent clear this is a spy. The, the well, only, went, the only now, question. How can you is, dare toss around one hundred percent immediately okay, after ninety nine point eight percent? We have to leave some room for circumstances. Well, I wouldn't call it on. I wouldn't call you on it if you hadn't immediately said poo pooed me for saying no question. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, almost certainly a spy. The question, the main question here is where the spy came from. So, as I mentioned before, this is not the only disappearance or incident in Norway during the Cold War, and uh, almost every other one was, you know, coincided with espionage. And as I mentioned, as, well, so, we talked about the missile and her movements being kind of coincided with the military trials of this missile. This, this, uh, those, that theory has been corroborated by a report from a fisherman this fisherman reported to have seen a woman who was observing military movements in the <laughs> town of Stavanger. Okay. Tiny little town, basically where they were doing these uh, missile trials. So almost almost certainly this woman was just kind of looking at these missiles. Um, also, I want to go ahead and note that this woman had nine passports. Yeah. Who the hell has got nine passports that's I'll not tell you. a spy? Well, Spies. Totally yeah, spies. Jeffrey Epstein. The show. Jeffrey. Well, international pedophiles don't count. Yeah, I mean that's in the same. I okay. mean we can we could we won't. Are but you? We in, could get into the Mossad are you ties. In, of are, Jeffrey. Let's let's skip that. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> let's right. let's go ahead and shelve that discussion. Yeah, that's uh, that's yeah. We'll we'll talk about that later. Um, anyway. So, uh, well, literally the next line in my notes is related to Mossad. So if anybody knows anything about spying, especially in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, it's Israeli intelligence. It's yep. Mossad. So like they were doing some wild stuff back in the 70s, especially, you know, and uh, there was a lot of very, very, very similar activity to this that was done by Mossad in Europe around the same time. And it very well may have been linked to what we're talking about here. Uh, so I don't want to say it's Mossad, but legitimately, like, I mean, Mossad is, has, has been known for particularly... Oh, they are dastardly in the espionage game. Uh, yeah, like, as, like if well, and dastardly implies a negative context, and... <laughs> To quote Dan Gavin, that's not the kind of podcast we are. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. No, like, and and, and legitimately, this is not a 
Mossad is. They were definitely is, popping off in the in the spy game for sure. Like yeah. like and and I'm saying this as a as a positive. Like if you're if you're a spy and you're looking at like the best of the best. Yeah. Mossad well, Mossad has always been honestly. Top of their game. I'm pretty sure most of their espionage talent started with the Nazi hunting. Like that's probably where that originated for sure. And that's a really noble thing. To Absolutely. Be doing. Yeah. yeah. So I I want to be very clear that this is not us making fun of Mossad or or, or being anti-Jewish or anything like that. Like. Especially Mas- in the Masada's. light of the Deshaun Jackson comments, <laughs> it's very timely that we should. I don't even know about that, but all I'm saying is just that, like, this is this in, there's in, in no way an anti-Semitic comment, but like, Mossad is is like top of their game when it comes to being sneaky and 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 crazy in their in their methods. So well, I just want to I just want to say that this is very well may have been yeah. Mossad that was isn't because like especially like if you if you consider it. Like if you consider the the threat of a anti ship missile, like being Israel, like what do you have to can be concerned about? You don't like ground troops, like that. That's not really a big deal. Mm-hmm. The two main things they have to be concerned about is air superiority and ocean superiority. Right, right. Be, like protecting their water border and their land borders, which obviously they did via air because they had yeah. a sophisticated air force. And if they if they are concerned about their their water forces, especially in the seventies, right around when was it Yom Yom or not Yom Kippur, uh the Seven Days War. Yeah. Right? Is that what it was? With yeah, that was Egypt, right? Sure. I believe so. Anyway, yeah. b- back in the seventies, Israel was involved in several wars in the seventies and a lot of them involved ships. So yeah. like being on top of their like Suez. ship missile game like definitely very important and something they very much very well may have been involved right. in and probably something they probably should have been involved in but uh burning somebody alive in norway wah, wah. i mean yeah I, well the question well the, that's the thing it's well, the weren't want like well but who but who would have killed them it would yeah, have, it not would your, not have been their own people no way no for so. sure like and and honestly like if you're if you're pointing fingers at who would have killed the spy definitely not their own people so like, yeah i mean more than likely they're soviet spies or somebody aligned with them yeah uh who, whoever that may be anyway back to back to notes here so um interestingly there have been some modern developments in the story really yes starting in 1991 as new as 2019 and to those listening Whoa. uh what day is it Right now, what what day and what year? It is uh, July seventeenth, two thousand twenty. And uh, I will go ahead and spoil one of the tiny surprises. That is that the most recent developments in the story were less than one year ago today. Nice. So, uh, so yeah. So the very first thing would be that there's a taxi driver that claims to have taken the Easdall woman to the train station. This is not revealed during the investigation, This, but this was taken during a 1991 anonymous report to a local media source claiming that they were the driver, and they also picked up another man before going to the train station. In 2005, a Bergen resident, a local, uh, informed a local newspaper that he recognized the woman from a police sketch that he saw. Oh, and he had seen her five days prior to the, her death, or, or discovery at least. Sure. Noting that the woman was not at all dressed for a hike. Okay. Mind you, again, this is on a hiking trail on a 2,100-foot mountain that rose from the yeah. ocean. So you'd want to be right. wearing at least... At least some 
leggings reasonable or shoes or you know 1970s got to consider that correct so comfortable denim um, perhaps this person was walking and ran across two men going the other way wearing coats that he described as appearing southern oh this is a Norwegian man remember yeah I don't really know what southern means to Norwegians is so Oslo gonna, pretty southern not really Oh, really? Oslo is okay. directly east of where we're talking about. Oh, damn. That was right on, like, the north <clears throat> sea, that is. <laughs> no, Oslo, uh, well, Oslo is, like, kind of harbored, like, on the eastern kind of side of Norway, where it kind of tucks around. Okay. So. Not literally harbored. Well, literally via fjord, probably. Okay, sure. But Bergen is very much an actual harbor. Okay. Like a natural harbor in a fjord. Yeah. That's why it's the busiest shipping port in the entire country. Anyway, so uh, this woman or this man was walking, and he ran across two men wearing coats that he described as appearing southern. And he described the woman that was with them, more than likely these all women. And he described her as looking weary and resigned, and that like she was about to say something to him, but she didn't. Mm. Very suspicious. And uh, he did report this to the police. What do you think happened when he reported the police game? They said, we'll look into it, and that was the end of it. Even worse. Whoa. They told him not worry about it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, like, obviously, like, there's a bit of a conspiracy here. Sure. But yeah, so. Anyway, not a whole lot happens, and then the case was reopened in 2016. Okay. Um, more than likely spurred on by the election of Donald Trump. Really? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just <laughs> throwing some stuff about him that happened in that year. So, no, definitely not in any way related to Trump. So, um, anyway, not a whole lot happened in 2016 specifically. But in 2017, um, apparently, this woman may not have survived, but guess what did? Her teeth. Oh, cool. So, uh, this is something I was you know, kind of waiting to say earlier because I feel like we talked about this earlier when talking about the teeth on the yeah. uh, the Tamamashud case. So um, they did preserve the teeth and jaw of this woman. So uh, they did stable isotope analysis on this jaw and teeth which revealed this woman to have been born in about 1930 near Nuremberg, Germany. Wow. Surprised they could nail that down from teeth. So interestingly, that's exactly the next uh, sentence. So this method primarily relies on isotopes in drinking water. Oh, okay. So basically, like, wherever you're drinking water in your entire life, your teeth are basically building a history of where you've lived. Yeah, because it's always going to be different. Yeah, exactly. Right. Based on the minerals in the ground and things like that. Unless you exclusively drink bottled water for your entire life, which I don't think anybody has ever done. Especially not 1970. Precisely. So, um, isotope analysis also showed that this woman, shortly after her birth, moved to either France or the French-German border as a child, uh, which reinforces earlier findings that she had likely been educated in either France or a neighboring country based on her handwriting. Huh. Possibly Belgium. So dental de, later dental analysis also found that she had. This is ridiculous. I, I'm, I'm going to preface this by saying that 
she either, she had done. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't say this without <laughs> laughing. She had dental work <laughs> done in either East Asia, Central Europe, Southern Europe, or South America. <laughs> okay, I literally I literally noted in this that that was probably not helpful. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of places. Uh, so anyway, um, yeah dental work in most of the world possibly yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, just not america um couldn't even nail it down to one hemisphere not even yeah not even so uh anyway in 2018 nrk which is the norwegian public bro- what the main norwegian public broadcaster i'm not sure if there are others i won't, i don't want to say there are uh as well as the bbc they did a joint publishing pro- podcast series titled death in ice valley which included interviews and eyewitness reports, uh, as well as forensic scientist reports. Um, that was in, like I said, 2018. Then in June of 2019, the BBC revealed that the listeners of the podcast had given some more clues. Further, uh, Colleen Fitzpatrick, a geneticist with the DNA Doe Project, contacted the Death in Ice Valley team to offer her help in identifying the woman through genetic genealogy or genealogical isotope testing of autopsy autopsy tissues. And from what I can read, there's not been much development since then. And we still do not have a definitive identity or closure as far as the origin of this woman. We still do not know who the Isdal woman is. Well, I don't think we ever will, because if the government was obviously shutting it down, like... It's obviously something that is inflammatory. And more than likely is a country that just, like, is friendly with Norway, that really does not care to get their missile espionage from the 1970s out and air that dirty laundry. Yeah. And frankly, what, what what do you posit as your theory? And... Uh, you know, I don't really, I guess I don't have a theory and I don't know if I need one because I'm, I'm happy with just knowing the mystery because I know that, that, uh, that's a spy death and, uh, I mean, I'm happy with that because I'm never, ever going to get the answer. No, I I don't think anybody will. Um, I think it's a 50-50 shot. I think she's either Israeli or East German. Okay. Yeah. Because the Soviets have a, had a vested interest in missile technology. Yeah. And the Israelis did as well. And based on being Belgian and from the, you know, France, Belgium, Germany border. I feel area, like I could see. I could see East German. I could see East German more than Israeli. Because why? I would, agree, but the behavior of where they were looking and all the, all the like, just a lot of it, like, there's. I don't know. I I, I lean, I'd say sixty percent East German, forty like, percent Israeli. I mean, isn't Israel like mostly allied with the West? Like, why would there? Why would they even need a spy? Yes, but in the seventies, things were muddied. Okay. Especially with like, hey, listeners, go Google USS Liberty. <laughs> Have fun with that one. Yeah. Uh, there's some weird stuff that happened in the seventies with Israel. So, like, I I don't I don't want to say that like, definitely wasn't Israel. I'm obviously like well I'm happy with 50, I'm, I'm, 50. I'm not no nah, I'm not I don't want to say 50 50 I'd say 49 60 51. to 60 to 70 percent East Germany okay 30 to 40 percent uh but not just, insignificant just, amount well, chance it's, just, it's just like Israel is doing all sorts of wild shit especially in the 70s as far as like 
intelligence goes, but I heavily lean towards East Germany because the Soviets had a much, much greater vested interest in, in missile technology at that point. So I, I, I definitely believe that it was, it was more Soviet aligned than otherwise, but I, I definitely leave the possibility open that it was, it was Israeli intelligence because they were really on top of their game in the seventies. Yeah. So anyway, on that note, uh, we don't have any kind of closure on either of those cases. And that's pretty much the point of this podcast is that we leave you wondering and you'll have to come back to the next episode when we definitely have the answer and the biological results of who no, yeah. I'm just, I'm just with you. We, we definitely don't have answers. No. Well, here's what I'll say. Cause I'm assuming that's, that's it. You, that's what you've got. Yeah. That's, that's the end of my spiel. If you are listening right now, I want to give a big shout out to you because based on, uh, my best guess here, we started recording current time right now is 10 17 p.m central standard time central standard time on july the 17th 2020 i think we started recording about 7 30 so you you will obviously experience some of the um technical difficulties we had but i wish that i could just translate to you what this has been like on the producing end and the absolute logistical fucking nightmare this episode has been. But God damn it if I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I love you listeners. We all do. I love stepping into the fucking studio. If you'll pardon my language, <laughs> we're at the end of a long day. I love stepping into this immaculate studio I have in my uh, four-bedroom, three-bath apartment in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. <laughs> Overlooking uh, the financial district. It's not even devil white. I, <laughs> it's I in fact live in a single wide trailer, and we are now in a. What would you say, Greg? Uh, twelve foot by twelve foot prison cell of a bedroom with beige paint, and a vaguely racist license plate on the wall. That's my that'll, fault. That'll, that's my fault. That's a I mystery. Wanna, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a topic for another podcast. We, we definitely should talk about the subject of that. Oh, yeah. As a podcast. That'd be good. For sure. Because that, that man is an enigma. <laughs> yeah, but really we'll leave is. that as a mystery for a future podcast. But hey. Because he, he legitimately was a racist, but a racist from the north that got... Some, yeah, anyway, we can talk about that later. But a very weird man that definitely deserves a podcast of his own. Oh, boy. Well, thank you for listening. Greg and I are going to continue the month of merriment. There's a man who leads a life of danger. To everyone he meets, he stays a stranger. With every move he makes, another chance he takes. Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow.